My name is Michael Asiam, and I'm the host of Let's Talk, Let's Talk Growth, and we're going to be doing this show every Monday evening. I'm super excited to have with us another special guest for the second week, um, and pretty much Let's Talk Growth is all about um, creating a space in the community where we could talk about some of the different issues that are going on, um, namely mental health, everything mental health, everything in terms of however mental health, and we know that mental health is in it affects so many different areas of our life. So today we're having another candid conversation just to really highlight, um, you know, mental health, life, business, wellness, and hopefully you could kind of share with us. So without further ado, uh, Ms. Solange, thank you very much for joining us. And please tell everybody who you are. And I know you personally, so just tell everybody who you are and how we could, um, we could keep going today. Sure. Um, so I just want to begin by saying that the conversation that Mike and I are having is um, strictly for the purpose of providing legal information. So if you do require any legal advice, please feel free to hit me up privately. Um, but nothing that I say over this live is to be interpreted as me giving you any legal advice. Um, so who am I? I am, as, as Mike said, I'm a criminal defense lawyer. Um, I've been practicing for two years now across the greater Toronto area. So um, I represent people that are charged with all sorts of offenses under the criminal code the Controlled Drug and Substances Act, but also the Highway and Traffic Act and the Provincial Offenses Code, um, Provincial Offenses Act. So I represent people that are charged with both criminal and quasi-criminal offenses. Um, so because of that, I have to appear in a number of courts across the city, from provincial courts to Ontario Courts of Justice and Superior Courts of Justice. Um, and I conduct bail hearings, preliminary inquiries, and trials in front of judges alone and also in front of juries. Okay, that's a lot. But I remember you personally from my child welfare days. I used to see you in the, at the courthouse in Peel yeah. on Wednesday evenings. We had. And I was just a lowly uh, article student. You, you were just article yeah. at that time. I remember. I remember seeing you those times, and I remember, um, you know, it, it was always interesting. I like. I love going to court just because you know you really get to kind of see a different, um, almost like the criminal justice system and yeah. just how it kind of affects different areas. So it's great to kind of have you on today just to kind of teach us more. But really, here. why I reached out to you really why I reached out to you because you know there's so much things happening in the community yeah. um and so it's always great to have a legal voice you know and um I know last week we asked the same question but I want to ask you the same question again so no justice no peace what does that mean to you but I know coming from a lawyer yeah. it would be a bit more okay so I think definitely um these last few weeks have been very triggering for a lot of black people both in the states in Canada and internationally um, and for me, when I hear no justice, no peace as someone who specifically works in the criminal justice system, um, it's something that resonates home with me. Um, a lot of times you hear people saying, well, racism is a problem for our neighbors in the South. It doesn't occur here in Canada. Um, but the reality is systemic racism is alive and well in Canada. And I've seen it on a number of my um, interactions with the criminal justice system. And I think it's something that's felt in the black community, specifically in our interactions with the police and with the criminal justice system. Um, so over, over policing, I think of racialized neighborhoods and specifically of black bodies um, is something that has been an ongoing concern for us here in Canada. Um, and it's also something that inspired me to want to become a criminal defense lawyer. Um, I feel like it's important to use your power to challenge the things that you think are wrong um, or to challenge the inequalities that exist within our society. And this has allowed me to be able to do that. Um, specifically in the criminal justice system, I can tell you there's been a number of occasions where I've either encountered racism or seen the effects of um, the disproportionate and unequal treatment of black people 
So for instance, um, you know, you go to the East Toronto Detention Center and in order to see your client, you have to be paraded through the cells where all of the other people in custody are. And the number of black faces, specifically male black faces that you see, it can be very disheartening for someone like me, who's a black woman, right? Who has four, four brothers, grew up in a black family. And I think that's just one, um, I think, visual representation of the effects mm -hmm. of the over-policing of black bodies. So I wanna talk to you a little bit about some of the stats that I was able um, to come across. Okay. Um, so for instance, in 2017, the John Howard Society released the report and it looked at 10,000 arrests in Toronto. And what they found mm -hmm. was that blacks were actually 50 times more likely to be taken to a police station after their arrest than their white counterparts. Um, and they were 100% more likely to be held overnight. And when they were released on bail, they were often released on more stringent conditions. Um, blacks, as I said, are overrepresented in provincial jails, but also in federal prisons. Um, and I think it's also important to remember that in a lot of these encounters between black Canadians um, and the police, they often tend to be more violent or more aggressive in nature. Um, so for instance, the Ontario Human Rights Co uh, Commission um, released a report in 2018 where they looked at a sample of Black Canadians from 2013 to 2017. And one of the things that they found was that although Black um, Canadians only make up 8.8% .8 of the population in Toronto, they made up 25% of SIU investigations. Um, they made up 28.8% .8 of all use of force cases involving the police. They accounted for 36% of police shootings and they accounted for 70% of police shootings that resulted in civilian fatalities. Um, also, although black men only made up 4.1% of the population between 2013 to 2017, um, they were the complainants in at least one quarter of all SIU cases alleging sexual assault by Toronto police officers. So they were alleging that during the course of um, frisks or strip searches, they were sexually assaulted. So I think it's really important that um, all racialized Canadians, but specifically Black Canadians, understand their rights so that they're better equipped to handle themselves whenever they um, find themselves in a sticky situation involving the police. Well, you know, the thing about it, sticky situations is my life because, <laughs> I mean, growing up, I actually lived in some of these communities that were, you know, over-policed, like, as you said, and I've had a lot of negative yeah. encounters. And even till today, you know, as you kind of, you know, you feel like you've moved out of some of these communities, you still you know, kind of have continued to have some of these different experiences when you interact with the system. So I just want to take you through my scenario, just through my daily life, Okay. I guess, you know, so hopefully then you could kind of give me some advice of how to kind of navigate, you know, hopefully I know I have a couple of friends that are also watching. We're from these communities. So it's like, this is what we deal with on a daily basis. So we're so happy to have you here to kind of talk about it. So, you know, I go out, I go out in the middle of the night, I'm leaving the club with say my friends, for example, you know, and once we come right, right when we come out of the club, police officers want to speak to us and ask, start asking us questions. Um, what do we do? Certainly. Okay, so first, um, when I'm talking about your rights and freedoms, um, I'm referring to the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Um, so those are essentially your constitutionally protected rights and liberties, and they're, they make up the highest law in Canada. So it protects you from the unreasonable exercise of state power, which includes police power. Um, and sometimes it's your recourse when evidence is obtained illegally, you can allege that your charter rights were breached. So in your scenario, mm -hmm. you're leaving the club with your friends, you just had a great time, and a bunch of police officers accost you. Um, what sorts of rights are triggered? What does that mean for you? 
Um, so when you are walking, you know, on the street with your friends or by yourself, you do have a right to be free from, um, from state intrusion. And that includes police intrusion, um, especially when you haven't done anything wrong. Um, and if you are being stopped because you've been suspected of a crime, then certain rights are triggered because you've either been detained or you've been placed under arrest. So the first um, charter protected right that I want to mention when you're just walking on the street going about your business is Section 9 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So Section 9 basically stipulates that everyone, whether you're a Canadian citizen um, or you don't have status, everyone in Canada has the right not to be arbitrarily detained or imprisoned. Um, so what this means is that the police can't just walk up to you and stop you for no reason. Um, they have to have a legitimate purpose for why they're stopping you, or but you know they do, but you know they do that though. Yes, and oftentimes they do they do create legitimate reasons, and I'll talk to you about mm. what these le legitimate reasons actually look like. But there's a difference essentially between you know a casual encounter where the police might just engage in regular conversation with you and you being detained, and the difference is that with a casual encounter you're free to go, but when you're detained you're not free to go because you've been suspected okay. of a crime and there's certain rights that come as a result of that. So how do you know when you're being detained and how do you know when it's just a casual and encounter? Know, exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, so I would say the main distinguishing feature of a casual encounter is that you're free to leave or you're free to walk away, right? But you know you get you get this feeling of anxiety when you know it's like damn I, I don't know what this guy's gonna do he's probably gonna think i committed a crime when i walk away so i don't want to talk to him but i also don't want to walk away so you know kind of give me a little bit yeah i mean 100 percent, and that might be what happens unfortunately that is the reality for so many people but at least being able to recognize um when you're no longer in a casual encounter or when you're no longer able to walk away um you can then recognize what your rights are so in some situations, for instance, neighborhood policing or, you know, the police are in the area of the club when you leave and they approach you and they start making small talk. Um, I wouldn't suggest that you tell the officer, you know, to go screw himself and keep it moving. Mm -hmm. But you can respectfully ask the officer if you're free to leave. Um, and if you're not being detained um, and you're not under arrest and the answer should be yes and you should be free to keep it moving. Okay. Um, it's also important to note that um, during these casual encounters, you have the choice as to whether or not you want to speak to the police. But you need to be mindful of what you tell the police. So for instance, if during one of these casual encounters, the police ask you for your, um, for your identity and you give them a false name, they can then go and do a background check. And if they confirm that you lied to them, you can be charged with obstructing justice. So although you have the freedom during these casual encounters to engage in conversations with the police, still be mindful of what it is that you tell them because it can then be used against you down the road. Um, how do you know when you're detained? So unlike a casual encounter where you can walk away, detention occurs in two forms, either, either physically or psychologically. Um, so physically, a physical detention is pretty straightforward. Um, a police officer uses some form of physical restraint to impede your ability to walk away. Um, where it becomes a little bit more tricky is when we look at psychological detention. Um, so this is when um, a police officer through either um, a demand um, or an order um, impedes your ability to walk away. So in these scenarios, for instance, you're leaving the club with your friends, um, you're approached by several officers who surround um, every path that you could potentially walk in. Um, they tell you not to move or, or to keep your hands in front of you and they begin asking you a series of um, interrogating questions aimed at eliciting incriminating evidence from you. 
in that mm-hmm. scenario, that's a clear case of you being psychologically detained. Because in the eyes of a reasonable person looking at the scenario, um, it's pretty clear that you would believe that you have no choice but to stay there and comply with whatever direction the police gives you. Um, so unlike a casual encounter where it's maybe more more laid back, more, more nonchalant, more conversational, the questions are more directed, uh, your movement is being impeded through some kind of demand. And if a reasonable person were to step into your shoes and look at the scenario and all the circumstances, they would say, I too wouldn't feel like I could walk away from this. Um, okay. So that's, that's an that's a investigative, sorry, that's a detention. And there's two instances where the police can detain you. So the first is an investigative detention. And the mm-hmm. second instance is when you've been placed under arrest um, for committing an offense. So investigative detentions occur either through a psychological detention or physical detention, but you have not yet been placed under arrest. Um, in order for the police to place you under investigative detention, um, there's certain limitations to when they can actually do this. So they have to have something called reasonable suspicion. Um, and what mm-hmm. that is, is they believe for some reason that you have been implicated in the criminal um, activity that they are aware of. So it has to be a recent or ongoing criminal offense. It can't be, you know, something from 10 years ago that maybe they heard of and they think that, you know, you match a vague description. That's not really reasonable suspicion. It has to be recent or ongoing. Um, The offense has to be connected to you in some sort of way. So maybe there's a suspect description. And I know that's something that's often invoked by the police, but you know, just to give you a clear example, there's a suspect description and they're saying that you match that description. Um, and the officer must be aware of the crime. So it can't be something that his partner knows of and then he's decided to investigate you because mm-hmm. what is he then investigating you for? What is she then investigating you for? Um, so again, it can't just be a hunch or, oh, those guys look like they're up to no good. No, there has to be a reasonable suspicion that you have been involved in some sort of criminal activity. Um, well, yeah, mm-hmm. go ahead. So... Um, just if I'm correct, you do not have to, you know, kind of answer the questions that the cops have. Um, but if they, they're, you know, they're trying to detain you, whether psychological or physical, you would then know exactly, you know exactly what they're trying to do in terms of that. So what about just even generally, um, you are, you're just trying to get going and they're trying to detain you from, or, you know, ask you questions, but you have to get to go where you're going. You know, you're not involved in anything, but a lot of times you feel this level of pressure when you're just walking and doing your thing. So how do you kind of navigate that? So I think, again, like, I know this can be sometimes a difficult conversation to have with police officers, but it's also important, I think, to build a record of you attempting to assert your rights. Um, If you are being detained, then the officer actually has an obligation to inform you that you're being detained and why you're being detained. Um, Mm -hmm. And if you're not being detained, then you should be free to walk away. So the moment you realize that you can't walk away and you're asking the officer, for instance, if you're free to go and he or she is telling you no, that means you're detained. It doesn't necessarily mean that you've been placed under arrest, but it means you're detained. And the only time that you can be detained is when they have reasonable reasonable suspicion that you've been engaged in some kind of a criminal activity. Okay? But you know know exactly what they'll do. They'll be like, okay, cool. And then they'll let you go just to see what car you get into. So now I got into my car. I start driving. He wouldn't even follow me, but then his boy starts following me. Another officer starts following mm-hmm. me. I'm driving down King Street now. I turn onto Spadina. You know what I'm thinking? Oh my God, it's a cop following me. I'm panicking. Um, you know, I'm driving down Spadina now, trying to get to the highway so I could, bla- I could get to Park Lawn. 
But then all of a sudden, I notice after I pass a few lights, you know, the car pulls me over. Okay. What do I do here? So here's here's the caveat. So unlike when you're walking, you know, down the street, which is a right, you have a right to walk down the street without being accosted by the police if you've done nothing wrong and they don't have reasonable suspicion. Unlike walking down the street, driving is considered a privilege. It's something that you have to mm -hmm. obtain a license for. It's something that's regulated by the state. And so because of that, there's a reduced expectation of freedom from state intrusion than you would have um, when you were just walking down the street. So police actually always have the authority to be able to pull you over and ensure that you're complying with what we call the Highway and Traffic Act. So um, they can determine whether you're fit to drive. And this includes looking for signs of impairment. And this is often what ride programs are for. Um, they can determine the ownership of the vehicle. They can determine that you have a valid driver's license, that your insurance is valid. Um, and those are the sorts of questions that they can ask you at any time. Although, you know, there have been instances where it becomes repeated for particular people and they may seek other recourses for that. But on a general basis in your day-to-day -day life, um, the police do have the authority to be able to pull you over um, at any point in time to ensure compliance with the Highway and Traffic Act or to check for signs of impairment. Um, when you're in your vehicle, though, there are certain rights that you still have, even if they are just doing a random um, safety stop or a ride program. So they're only limited to asking you questions about the validity of your driving or the soundness of the vehicle. But you know, sometimes they'll ask you where are you going or where are you coming yep. from? All the questions, have you been drinking tonight? Like, how do you kind of process that? So, I mean, I can tell you right now that if you tell the officers that you've been drinking tonight, you've, you've probably opened up a worm, a can of worms. Exactly. Right. Um, and they are allowed to ask you if you've been drinking because they can check for signs mm -hmm. of impairment because that's linked to your, your privilege of driving. Um, mm -hmm. But in terms of where you're going, where you're coming from, do you have any drugs in the car? Do you have any weapons in the vehicle? Those are criminal questions. Um, well, who are these guys? Who are these guys? You're who with? are these guys that you're with? So whenever you're yeah. whenever you're engaged in a ride program, the only person that police can direct their their questions to is the driver, not any of the okay. other passengers in the vehicle. They're all considered bystanders. They don't have to provide any identification documents unless there's some sort of criminal investigation underway. Um, but generally, the only person that is required to answer questions during the course of a ride stop or a highway traffic act. Um, stop is the driver and not the passengers of the vehicle. If somebody's not wearing a seatbelt, does this kind of bring up something else? Well, if someone's not wearing a seatbelt, um, you won't be charged criminally, but you can receive a ticket for not having a seatbelt. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, so you, you, you said day-to-day -day life, you know, so now you kind of got me thinking about something else too. So day-to-day -day life, you know, every time I feel like every time black people get together, a car has to come. Mm -hmm. And I see this many times, you know, I think, Every time, whether it's, you know, for a noise complaint or that's what usually is kind of perceived yeah. at a lot of times. So I'm hanging out with my friend, hanging out with somebody. Cops come onto the property, you know, to knock the door. Yeah. And, you know, we approach them. How would you kind of help us navigate this? Okay. So police are allowed to um, come to your door for any legitimate purpose. So, for instance, maybe there's noise because of music that's playing and a neighbor's called the police and they're investigating a noise complaint they can come to your door. Say somebody calls 911 and alleges a crime has happened, they can come to your door. Say they're mm -hmm. engaging in general neighborhood policing, they can come to your door. But their ab ability to investigate any criminal activity happening within your home ends at the door unless they have a search warrant. So 
Okay. In the eyes of, of the Canadian Charter, your home is your sanctuary. It's the place where you go at the end of the day, you know, when you want to unwind, where you want to feel comfortable. And so they take it very seriously. It's, it's taken very seriously if the, if the police impede on your sanctuary, that being your home. So absent certain um, extreme circumstances, the police don't have the authority to enter your residence unless they have a search warrant. Now, you can let the police into your home if you want to confirm that you haven't done anything wrong, but you're by no means obligated to allow the police into your home. And if you do, you also have to be mindful about things that might be in plain sight. So, for instance, mm -hmm. you know, maybe you're partying with your friends and there might be some contraband laying around um, and you decide to let the police into their residence, even if they haven't necessarily come to your door to investigate something illegal that was happening. If by you allowing them into your residence, they see signs of illegal activity, they can then begin arresting people that are in the home. So you have to be mindful of that. Um, the other time when um, police can enter your home um, without a search warrant um, are in the cases of hot pursuit, destruction of um, evidence or exigent circumstances. So if they're chasing a suspect and the person runs you know, through your front door, that might be the they exception for them to come in. Like, um, like in the movies. Yeah, which is, which is rare, right? Um, okay, less rare right. perhaps is destruction of evidence or exigent circumstances. So for instance, police might be conducting surveillance on your home for a prolonged period of time. And maybe they're of the opinion that you've been tipped off and that there are drugs in the home that are going to be destroyed if they wait on a search warrant. Um, in those instances, it might be seen as acceptable for them to enter your house without a warrant. But again, that's something that's usually, it really depends on, on the circumstances of the case. Um, and they're often litigated in court after the fact. Okay, so under any circumstances, if I am placed or anybody else is placed under arrest, what do you do? What are the steps, you know? Yeah. Just so that we kind of... Okay. Because I know what they'll be telling you, but, you know, what should I... What does one have to kind of keep in mind okay. during this process? So, so the first thing that you have to be mindful of is if you've been placed under arrest or you've been placed under investigative detention, meaning you can't walk away, the police have to inform you that you've been placed under arrest or that you've been placed under detention and for what reason. Now, the second part of that, so this is section 10 of the charter um, and it's called your, it's, it's usually referred to as your rights to counsel. Um, the second part of this is section 10B of the charter. And what it says is that everyone under arrest or detention has the right to retain and instruct counsel without delay and be informed of that right. So first the police have an obligation to tell you that you are in fact detained or that you are in fact under arrest, that you can, you can move accordingly, right? You recognize at that point that the situation is a lot different than just a casual encounter. You've now been suspected of a crime or accused of a crime if you've been placed under arrest. Um, in addition to being informed of that, they now have to give you the ability to speak to a lawyer, the right to speak to a lawyer. Um, and the reason for this is because, um, you know, courts recognize, the charter recognizes that, you know, police being an extension of the state have a massive amount of resources, right? And when they place you under arrest, they've removed any liberty, any choices that you have, including your ability to contact a lawyer and to get sound legal advice about how you should proceed accordingly. Um, and so because of this, your 10B right is really important um, because it allows you to be able to contact a lawyer of your choosing or to contact a free lawyer that's provided through duty, duty counsel and legal aid um, and then to receive legal advice so that you know how to proceed accordingly. So when you're placed under arrest, they have to inform you of your right to counsel. 
um, almost immediately upon arrest. And they also have to inform you about the availability of free legal counsel because not everybody has a lawyer on speed dial that they can call. Um, now, once you tell the officer that you would like to exercise that right, and this is the key, I think, thing that people don't really realize is that you're placed under arrest and they tell you you have a right to counsel and you say, oh, no, 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 it's okay. Um, it's, it's, it, the best thing to do is to always seek legal advice because it's really not gonna hurt you. Um, it's only gonna put you in a better situation. And the moment you tell the officers that you would like to speak to a lawyer, they have to refrain from asking you any incriminating questions or attempting to elicit any body samples, including breathalyzer mm. tests. Um, so for instance, before you give a breathalyzer sample, the police will give you the ability to speak to a lawyer, either of your choosing or duty counsel lawyer. So it's always a good idea um, to exercise that right because it's an obligation on the part of the police. And a lot of times, especially in impaired cases, um, you know, whether or not someone is convicted of a crime depends on how well the police executed um, your right to counsel. Okay, so I mean, we're on a mental health chat and everything we're talking about is mental health. So let's get to that part of the segment yeah. now. So I know within the mental health field, a lot of times we see that, you know, um, we never just see behavior. We know that there's always something, you know, we always try to look deeper as to why. But I know the criminal justice system, sometimes they see mental yeah. health issue, but even whether it's an education, behavior takes precedent. And a lot of times that's the first thing that we see, right? So how does mental health fit with the criminal justice system? Um, well, I think courts are, are starting to recognize that mental health does often play a significant role when it comes to the choices that people make, either willingly or unwillingly. Um, and, and it often intersects with, with, with crimes, right? So you might get called, as an officer, you might get called to a scene where someone is behaving erratically and, um, you know, they might get charged with, you know, causing a disturbance or something. And then you realize down the road that maybe there was an undiagnosed mental health illness that was not treated at the time. Um, so courts are definitely, I think, trying to recognize this more. A lot of courts have um, specific courtrooms that are catered towards dealing with mental health mental clients. Health um, yeah, so yeah, mental health court. Um, so Old City Hall, for, for instance, has a, a mental health court um, where you deal with bail hearings, you deal with sentencing, you deal with um, everything mental health related and any clients that have some sort of a mental health issue are often placed into this courtroom so that they can be um, dealt with accordingly. Um, and I think one of the realizations is that when you have mental health issues and you are alleged to have committed crimes, a lot of times your your choices are somewhat constrained by whatever mental health issue that it's that you're dealing with. And so that that thing between choice and mental health, right? That that balance between choice and mental health is kind of um, is kind of imbalanced because of whatever mental health issue that you're dealing with. Um, so it reduces in some ways your moral blameworthiness, right? How can you really be held responsible for something that maybe you weren't fully aware of when you were doing it. So uh, mental health courts, I would say definitely do a good job of recognizing that. It's not always the case, um, you know, that your client will get placed into mental health court depending on their criminal record, depending on, you know, the nature of the case. There are a number of factors that come into play, but that's one way in which that you, you can, I guess, work with clients that have mental health issues. Okay. so. Um, I, I know you mentioned how the courts work with, you know, and yeah. address and support mental health. So I have a quote that I wanted to read to you just to kind of talk about how maybe we need to address mental health. And so I want to say the quote to you and then you tell me how you interpret it. Um, so Kerry Washington said this, you know, Kerry Washington, right? Yeah. She's like, I go to the dentist. So why wouldn't I go to a shrink, which is a therapist? 
So what do you think she meant by that? This is a famous quote that went around. So she says she goes to the dentist. So why wouldn't I go to a shrink? Um, mental health is a part of your everyday well-being and your everyday life, right? Just like going to the dentist and getting your teeth cleaned, I think it's also important to make sure that you're, you're okay mentally, right? Um, and I think it's, it's something that's often seen as taboo, especially in the Black community. It's swept mm -hmm. under the rug. Um, but it really shouldn't be. It's something that I think everybody has to deal with at some point in their lives. It's something that I'm sure a lot of people have been dealing with more recently because of the events that have been unfolding. Um, and specifically for criminal defense lawyers, it's very important that you deal with it um, and address any mental health concerns that you might have because it's a very lonely job. Um, you spend a lot of time you know, working by yourself, sifting through hours and hours of disclosure. It's very taxing when you're in court um, and sometimes um, it can lead to all kinds of issues with addiction, depression, anxiety. And so specifically for, for lawyers, I think mental health is something that should be at the top of everyone's radar and that you should be okay. constantly striving to work on. Okay, so my second part of that question is, personally, how do you take care of your mental health? Because if you say you're yes. working on these long <laughs> hours, how do you take care of your mental health? Um, I keep a bottle of uh, alcohol in my locker at work. <laughs> but separately, <laughs> okay. separately and apart from that, um, I think it's just really important to have a good network of people um, outside of the law that you can hang out with, unwind with, that get you as a human being and not just as a lawyer. That's one thing. Um, another thing I think is to set boundaries. As a criminal defense lawyer, you often get calls at all hours of the day and night. Um, and some of those are unavoidable, for instance, arrest calls. But it's important, I think, to set boundaries with your clients so that they know that you're not going to be available at every single hour of the day, especially when it's not mm -hmm. for a dire or urgent, urgent um, need that they might have. So maybe you don't take calls on Sundays and that's time that you spend with your family. Um, maybe, you know, you don't answer calls after a certain time of the day, but you have to set those boundaries, definitely. You know, the mental health piece is so important. I want everybody listening just to really understand that we want to continue to put the message out there. It doesn't matter if it's a physical illness that you deal with the same way that you take a headache so seriously or, you know, you have a broken leg or you're seeing some of the physical symptoms that make you worried. You know, a lot of times mental health, you know, the little triggers or the little things that make us know that, you know, we're unwell or that yeah. we need to um, really access um, supports is just as important, you know, so as much as you take care of your physical health, you want people to continue to be mindful of their mental 100%. health and also uh, make that a priority because as we continue to have different people on, even our, we have our lawyers that are speaking of mental health and in all areas of our life, we want to continue to make this the message just so that people, um, especially the Black community, were accessing supports earlier because as, as Salon just mentioned, you know, we're finding that people are ended up in court and then during the court process is coming out that okay there's some of the root causes of this is mental health challenges mm -hmm. and then they come to see the therapist after it's like okay let's do some of the work before let's get people supported just so that you could kind of work for more of a preventive lens 100%. and give people this give people the skills to continue to take care of themselves so um what is next for solange i know you know you're, you're working 90 hours a week you know we're dealing with a pandemic right now um what's next for you yeah um i think just continuing um, to ride this momentum, I think there's a renewed um, recognition of the problem of systemic racism in Canada and people wanna learn more and they wanna know how to tackle um, various aspects of it. And so I think contributing, it to, contributing to the discussion through my work as a criminal defense lawyer. Um, so, you know, this IG live session, I think was just the beginning. I would like to 
begin enro um, unrolling a series of informational short videos centered around criminal law, criminal defense. Um, so I plan on unrolling a series of Know Your Right sessions. So please tune into my page for that. If there's anything that, you know, any of the listeners might be interested in learning more about, feel free to drop a line um, on the video when Mike posts it. And I will try to uh, create some content for that. Um, but that is essentially what I'm focused on right now. And obviously just continuing to kill it in and out of court for my clients. Okay, yeah. that's what's up. Okay, so we had one question. It says... Do the courts use mental health in cases with black males? I've only seen that defense work with white clients. Let's get, I guess, so. Um, I, I would say, yeah. So from a defense perspective, there's really only one instance where mental health can be um, relied on as a defense, and that's not criminally responsible by reason of um, mental, I can't remember the last word, but essentially what you're telling the courts is that you had no control over your actions because of whatever mental health issue that you were dealing with at the time. Um, but that's a tricky subject in and of itself. And I could talk some more about that maybe at another live session, um, mm -hmm. because it can often increase the length of your sentence, depending on how serious your crime is. Um, and so sometimes it's not the avenue that you necessarily want to pursue. Um, but in terms of mental health court, um, I do see um, black men and women in mental health court. Um, the charges are often less serious um, and you're usually not using it as a defense, but in my negotiations, for instance, with the Crown prosecutor, I might bring these issues to the surface in an effort to get my client placed into mental health court so that we can focus more on addressing their mental health needs as opposed to focusing on whatever crime it was that they're accused of committing. Okay, so we got that question answered. So, um, no, this is super exciting and we're glad to have you today. Uh, what, what what it says? Sorry, does somebody have one more? It says reintegration for clients with criminal offense. Um, that was just somebody. Okay, so we're super happy to have you on today. I think Solange and um, I know ourselves. We're working on a special collaboration coming for the community. So you guys continue to stay tuned. Um, just because mental health and um, and the courts, you know, we work hand in hand. A lot of times, yeah. even seeing similar clients. So we want to continue to have a wraparound approach for the community just so that people are getting supported in all areas of their life and not just in court. I know Solange is an amazing lawyer. She'll get you off the chart, but if you don't take care of some of the mental <laughs> no health promises. issues, you're going to end up, you're going to, you're going to end right back up. You're going to end right back where you started, you know? So we want to continue to put out the good message and encourage people to get support as much as possible. Um, thank you to everybody who's joining tonight. We believe that, you know, every Monday we're going to be here to create space for the communities to just talk about, you know, mental health, talk about, you know, how it affects the legal system or how, you know, um, it affects your, your life and business. And next week, we have a very special guest, Sandra Francisco, coming on. She's a business coach and a consultant, and she's going to be talking business, life, and mental health, you know. So she's somebody that has a lot of experience working with a lot of industry leaders, and she herself is an industry leader. Um, but she's here to talk to all the young entrepreneurs that are trying to start something but can't get out of their own mind to get going. So I might have to tune into that one. Not, you have to tune <laughs> yeah. in. So if you're an entrepreneur trying to get going, she's going to be here. She's also going to be doing a three or four part series similar to what Solange is going to be doing with us just to really kind of take the community along and give people some of the education and space yeah. that they need to start growing. So that's what this is all about. Let's Talk Growth is all about getting people to support just so that you can make independent decisions and feel supported knowing that you have a community to support you. So support and growth page, please check us out. We're going to have this live. Um, if you're looking for Solange Davis, you can find her through support and growth, but you can also find her 
at davis at criminaltriallawyers.ca. You can also find, follow her Instagram page at solange.law. And my, my Instagram page has all of my contact information. So if you want to get a hold of me um, to talk about something more privately, just hit contact and you'll have access to my email and my phone number as well. Um, and as Mike was saying, like, I think this was a great start. Um, the knowledge that I was able to share with you was really just a surface, just a screenshot of, of what your rights are whenever you have interactions with the police. So please stay tuned to my page as well, where I'll be um, releasing some more in-depth videos about what your rights are. So somebody just said she'll be my lawyer when my label blows. So we got we got some artists, you know, and some managers. So we're hoping that everybody enjoyed this live and we're going to be on again next week. So please share the page. Please at, sh tell your friends about it. And we're so happy to create this page. Solange, thank you very much thank for, you for being having me on the show today. And thank you, thank you, thank you to everybody who watched yes, today. Thank so you. we're done. All right.